0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest-growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, June 5th, 2023. Welcome to the month of June. Today, Jessica Spiegelman joins me for our first ever mailbag podcast, where we answer your questions. We're doing it lightning round style, where we try to cover several topics in one podcast. I do hope you enjoy it. Today's mailbag is going to include lactose intolerance in pregnancy, a question from Megan. Megan. We're going to talk about massage and pregnancy, a question from Caitlin. We're going to talk about TikTok and Instagram from Toby. We're going to talk about postpartum preeclampsia from Melissa. And finally, we're going to do a little bit on ADHD with Anna, her question. All right. So if you are teased and interested, great. Listen to the podcast, hope you enjoy. Please do send in your own questions so we can answer them in future mailbag podcasts and you will get a first name shout out. To send in your questions, you can email them to hw at healthfulwoman.com or you can go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com and click on the link that says, send us your questions. All right, thanks for listening. See y'all next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right. Dr. Jessica Spiegelman. speaks. Jess, welcome back to the podcast. How you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me back.
0: So this is really a first for our podcast. We're doing the mailbag or the lightning round, as you like to call. <laughs> We're just going to go through rapid fire the topics that you, our listeners, have sent in. I thought speaks would be great for this. This is very much like residency training right. at the blackboard or whiteboard or electronic <laughs> board or whatever they are now just boom 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 you know just mm-hmm. throwing questions left and right at the at the residents you know throwing 100 miles an hour at them and seeing you know where they swing and miss or where they hit it out of the park yep so i did let you know cuz we were talking back and forth how to do this what the questions were I don't know if in the future maybe I won't. I'm not sure. I it's feel gonna like it would be more
1: show. fun if I didn't know the questions in advance. It'll be more like residency.
0: That would be more like residency, but you know, it could it could sometimes take a turn for the uh, for the
1: <laughs> for the worst.
0: I guess it's sort. Of, this is sort of like for those who know the '90s movie reference. This is going to be like quiz show. So you I have did the questions. Know that
1: reference?
0: Uh, all right, you'll have to look it up. It's a, it's a it's a good it's a good movie from the '90s. So yeah, we're gonna be doing this hopefully. You guys, the listeners, will be inspired by podcasts like this to send in your questions related to pregnancy, related to women's health, related to gynecology, whatever it is. And as we compile them, we'll just start doing these podcasts. And the more questions we get, the more of these we'll have and get your questions answered. Mm-hmm. So speaks, game on.
1: All right. You're ready.
0: 60 yeah. seconds on the clock. No, uh, no, no, there's no clocker. All right. I, so the, yeah, the, yeah, the first question that we're going to talk about came in from one of our Listeners, I don't know if it's Megan or Megan, thank you for sending it in. And the question is, one thing I was wondering if you could talk about is lactose intolerance in pregnancy. I'm severely lactose intolerant, and it seemed to ease off during third trimester and has stayed away so far during breastfeeding. I can't find any reliable resources on this phenomenon, but I'm loving it. Honestly, I had never thought about lactose intolerance in pregnancy until that question came in.
1: Yeah, it's actually very interesting because I feel like the way I think about this usually is people talking about after birth, their babies having dairy intolerance and having to go off of dairy products. So kind of in the opposite way. And I don't know that anybody's ever told me before that, oh, magically, my lactose intolerance has gotten better during pregnancy. So I'm very happy for Megan. Yeah, great news. No,
0: yeah. Awesome. Great job. I also most of the time we're talking about sort of digestion and intestinal stuff in pregnancy, most people, at least in my experience, it's the opposite that they're sort of like fine. And then in pregnancy, they're like, oh my yeah. God, what is going on? Like right. I'm bloated, I'm constipated, I have diarrhea. Like I'm, you know, Can't they, tolerate yeah.
1: foods they used to tolerate. Yeah.
0: And, and not, not the nausea part of it, but just like, like they get sort of this temporary irritable bowel type thing. Yeah. And it was just very common in pregnancy. So I don't hear a lot of people saying, I'm getting better from yeah. My the exception is
1: things that are like autoimmune right. mediated, which we know that the immune system is suppressed in pregnancy, and so things that are considered autoimmune conditions do tend to get better in pregnancy, but they do tend to sometimes get worse actually postpartum. But lactose intolerance doesn't isn't that so
0: yeah. It's I don't exactly know why people get lactose intolerant like as opposed to someone else, but it's not autoimmune and it's yeah. not infectious, it's not anatomic. It's presumably they're you know for whatever reason they're lacking an enzyme yeah, you so know lactase. Like a genetic yeah, who knows? Condition. But so it's interesting. So we did a little research and actually found that people have reported this. We look, we found a couple of studies. There was one back from when you were uh, just a newborn, yep. from obstetrics and gynecology <laughs> in the late '80s, where essentially the researchers took 114 women, it looks like, who had lactose intolerance and they were doing like proper breath tests, like the real testing for lactose intolerance Mm -hmm. and found that almost half of them got better when they were pregnant.
1: I like the classification that this article uses of calling people either maldigesters or digesters.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, Megan, you've gone from a maldigester to a digester. If if you're curious, you can just get a T-shirt. Hi, I am a digester. But they found this and it's a real phenomenon. Apparently, I don't really understand what the mechanism might be of it. They sort of propose that there's this like teleologic reason, this evolutionary reason. Calcium. Yeah, that when calcium you're pregnant, you're supposed to take in yeah. calcium and all that. And okay, great. Well,
1: pregnancy mm-hmm. is a cal- a natural calcium depleter. Like it depletes calcium right. from the mother's body. So it does make sense that there would be an evolutionary adaptation to have you absorb more of that.
0: Yeah. So go That's figure. Very interesting. And then there was a study that was repeated or a similar study in well,
1: late 90s and
0: the 90s. And the same thing. It was I think it was 28 women who showed up. And again, a bunch of them just did better with yeah. lactose intolerance. But
1: they don't mention how long it lasts. So we do not have an answer for you on that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's if it's something related. I mean, in pregnancy, the things that tend to get better during pregnancy usually worsen or get back to where they were. Like four to eight weeks after birth, when sort of the the body you know sort of comes back to normal, but I don't know if nursing would yeah. potentially elongate that because of the, the calcium, calcium depletion. Yeah, if that's yeah. really
1: the kind of evolutionary reason for this, then it would make sense that it would last for as long as you're breastfeeding. Yes,
0: yeah, so that's pretty cool. So, so all you listeners out there who have lactose intolerance, hey. Let's hope. Yeah, maybe you'll get maybe you'll get some sort of reprieve when you're pregnant. And if you're not sure, maybe try it, see what happens. You know, give it a whirl, see if you can have <laughs> that uh, that yogurt that you never can have. You're going to get a lot
1: of angry emails now about people's <laughs> digestive issues during pregnancy. You told me I'm to dairy. Doctor Fox said I could have ice cream. I just
0: said you could try, just try. It's uh, well, you know, it it is important because just as you mentioned before, pregnancy is a time when the mother's calcium gets depleted. The baby's taking it obviously which is a big one and she's diluted in terms of her blood volume and there's a lot more turnover and it's actually one of the things that most pregnant women don't get enough of yeah. in their diet That's i mean the, yeah the recommended amount in everybody even if you're not pregnant actually is a thousand milligrams a day which is a lot people don't realize that and the amount of the prenatal is negligible it's like 100 yeah. 150 because it would just be so the calcium takes up room. So if you had to put a 1000 in a prenatal, you'd have to I think eat it with a fork and a it's knife. It's like
1: those big chewy tabs that yeah. like taste like caramel or whatever. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I I in my practice I recommend everybody take supplemental calcium unless you happen to be a huge dairy person like two glasses of milk a day plus a yogurt. You're one of those? Oh
1: yeah, I'm a digester.
0: You're a digester, <laughs> so you're big you're big you're big in the dairy department. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Wow. Wow. Are you sure you're Jewish?
1: I know, it's really confusing. <laughs> it's confusing. And my baby now is obsessed with cheese and just says cheese all the time. And I'm like, this is how we know that he's related to me. <laughs> that's, that's really
0: unbelievable. Yeah. It's you, you are the exception. I mean, I always ask, I always ask my patients say, Hey, much, how much calcium? you got? like, Oh no. I'm like, well, do you drink milk? Or he's like, Oh, absolutely. I mean, how much like, well, will have like this tiny amount of cereal. I'm like, anything else? Like, no, copies. I was like, no, you gotta, you gotta boost it up. So, all right, good. So thank you. Thank you, Megan or Megan for that question. And we're going to move on. Question number two comes from Caitlin. So Caitlin writes, I would love to understand more the limitations of massage during pregnancy. What are the medical risks exactly? And are the limitations different during the first versus third trimester? Also, do all the same rules around massage during pregnancy also apply to acupressure? So how would you hit this one, Speaks?
1: Uh, So I like love hate this question because we get this question a lot in the office. And I feel like there isn't a great way to answer it with a lot of science. But there is, you know, there's some data out there about massage and pregnancy. And the sort of general things that I tell people is most of the time, if you're going to a reputable place and they're marketing a prenatal massage, it is safe. Mm. They structure these massages so that they don't, run into any of the things that we think about as risk with massage. The main risks really are positional. So it's not really comfortable to lie flat on your back, especially later in pregnancy, and also can inhibit, you know, return blood flow to the uterus, can cause nerve issues. So in general, kind of like being on your side is really the best. And prenatal massage does that. It positions people on their sides. And then also the idea of deep tissue massage. And in really rare cases, if somebody happens to have like a blood clot in their leg, potentially dislodging that blood clot and having it kind of travel up to the lungs other things that people worry about are and this call kind of goes into acupressure and acupuncture as well acupressure really is are there trigger points that can trigger labor and i don't know if we have great science on that so in general i tell people if it's marketed as a prenatal massage and it's from a place that is reputable and not kind of like someone some guy in their basement or in a van then mm. it's probably done in a way that is safe for pregnancy
0: yeah well that's a lot more than I say I just say this, <laughs> I say this it's fine oh. <laughs> <laughs> I say massage yeah that's fine that's good no rules I don't yeah I mean I think that when people are concerned about massage I think in my experience it's this idea that if I get a massage it's going to put me into labor because someone has told them that and like the acupressure part which I don't Really buy into so yeah. much like sounds like well you can't rub the feet yeah. I was like really I
1: don't think the data is there yeah it's like
0: really like you get a foot massage to labor like if we're that easy we would have no problem inducing labor I mean <laughs> it's just
1: that doesn't could you never know. get a pedicure
0: yeah I don't so I'm not a big proponent of that and people's feet hurt when they're pregnant mm-hmm. they're swollen and they're under their pain and this and I'm like get a foot like God bless it's yeah. gonna make you feel better like for all we know, maybe it reduces stress and anxiety and it's improves outcomes. Who knows? So I typically give people no rules. I say, if you're really at the end of pregnancy, say if you're lying flat on your back for an hour, it may be uncomfortable for right. you, but you don't know that typically. Yeah. I mean, it's like when we do an ultrasound, the very end of pregnancy, you can't do it for that long because it's hard to lie flat on your yeah, back at I, the end. So I we, think there's yeah. a lot
1: of fear around lying flat on your back. And I think Outside of the context of massage, patients ask all the time in the office, like, I, I try to sleep on my side, but I wake up on my back. And like, is that okay?" I'm like, you're sleeping. Like, what are you supposed to do? And if that, you know, you're not the first person to have this problem and we don't see a lot of problems from it. So, yeah, your body is smart. It will be uncomfortable if you're doing something that is bad for it.
0: Yeah, I think massage is great. So I tell everyone and I listen, I'm not you know, hating on anybody who advertises prenatal massage, but it's mostly a marketing gimmick, gimmick to get you guys to come in and pay and get a massage. Uh, it's not that different from a regular massage other than they're going to sort of like take well, it more gentle and talk about the baby and say, oh, we're going to do this. And it, it's its lovely and they're great, but you could also go to a regular masseuse and say, Hey, I'm pregnant, or just they'll see your belly and say you're pregnant. And they'll, they should generally know what to do, unless it's that guy in the van or the right. basement who you're apparently going to to get massages I, I from. You
1: should not go to the guy in the van or the basement. Sounds <laughs> like Someone's
0: going to like there. abduct you. <laughs> it
1: doesn't sound safe. Does the
0: van have tinted windows?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he speaks. I got
0: candy. Come on in.
1: <laughs> I am very gullible like that.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> all that does offer you a glass of milk and you're just coming. You're right. I got a glass of milk. Come on in. Wow. So, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. No, I'm a big fan of massage. A lot of people help some with their again swelling in their lower extremities low back pain you know stress neck pain like all the stuff that comes up in pregnancy legitimately so i think it's awesome
1: yeah i'm a, I'm a massage fan as well yes
0: yeah, so, i mean specifically it there really isn't anything different first and third trimester except in the third if it's later you Physician. are physically larger so yeah. it may be hard to lie on your back first trimester you know i don't even feel it's necessary to Tell the masseuse you're pregnant. Yeah, yeah, like whatever, you know, again, they're not going to do anything to you that's going to hurt the baby or the pregnancy. So you're welcome to tell them, but it's not going to really make a big difference. In terms of acupressure, acupuncture, there are a lot of people who get those in pregnancy. Usually it's for pain. Mm -hmm. There are some people who get it at the end of pregnancy because it's advertised as something that's going to either put them into labor, like they want to go into labor or to advertise as something that's going to potentially turn the baby from head up to head down. The data on that is very weak, but the safety data is there. It seems to be quite safe if you want to get acupuncture during pregnancy. God bless. Go for it. Go to a good place that's not doing out of his van or his basement. (laughs) Although I guess a basement would be okay if it's a reputable basement. Yeah, I wouldn't do an acupuncture van, uh, I guess. I don't know. All right. Thank you, Caitlin. The next question we have is from Toby. Hey, Toby. I actually saw Toby in the office face to face also. So I know who Toby is. She's oh, delightful. Cool. So Toby asked a real, she has a bunch of questions, but a couple of them were really need to be full podcasts. Yeah, uh, so, we're gonna, so. so we're going to, so we're going to go to there. But the one she asked, which is really interesting. And we spoke about a little face to face in the office. Here's what she wrote. TikTok slash Instagram, women's health trends. There are a lot of accounts, some good, some bad, some actually horrible that say a lot of different things about pregnancy and birth, mostly there's a lot of doctor bashing, boo, and an overall idea that doctors don't have women's best interests in mind. How are doctors and midwives responding to these accounts and to the women in their practices who see and possibly believe some of these influencers? How do you respond when there's something legitimate in the news slash social media that is concerning patients? I just have to say off the front, I don't have TikTok.
1: Same. And
0: I actually told her that I believe TikTok is like chemical warfare. If we could go (laughs) back in time and uninvent it, the world (laughs) would be a better place. I actually said that like in court on a witness stand (laughs) recently. And the jury got a little chuckle though. I don't know what that's going to do to my life. So, yeah. So so but this does happen. Obviously, there's a lot out there and doctors are good. Doctors are bad. Midwives are good. Midwives are bad. Duelists are good. Duelists are bad. All this stuff. How do you sort of Approach that that world?
1: So I like this question for me to answer, actually, because I am somebody who also doesn't have TikTok, which maybe makes me not as an expert in this. But the reason I don't have TikTok is because of this. So right. I have a lot of feelings about it. I actually think this could be its own podcast because uh-huh. I could talk about it all day. Uh-huh. And I also am somebody who I do have Instagram, but I recently deleted it from my home screen on my phone, which has made a big quality of life difference for myself. I will just give a little plug for that. Anyway, there are are so many accounts on these social media platforms that are either claiming to promote health or actually promoting health. And I agree, a lot of them do a decent amount of doctor bashing and sort of make it seem like you're supposed to believe that your, your healthcare team is not actually your team and that people who really have devoted their lives and careers to women's health are not actually women's health advocates. And there's a lot of danger in that. I'm not going to say that universally every single person who goes into OBGYN, who goes into midwifery, birthing, those the, these fields, 100% of them are not going to have pure interests. But really, it's a very hard lifestyle. And most people who choose this field do it because they care about women's health. <laughs> And because they want to be advocates for women. So just statistically, like most likely, your provider is on your side and yeah. and wants to advocate for you. And I think there's also a lot of money to be made in a lot of this these kind of realms of your doctor doesn't know what's good for you, but this thing that I'm selling, it's the new snake oil salesman, right can help you with your problem. And so I always, warn people to be very wary of any accounts that are selling things because they have a a big motivator, which is to make money off of people's anxieties and fears. So there are a lot of accounts, and I think now especially, that are trying to combat this. There are doctors who have kind of thrown themselves into this social media world, and they're not in partnerships, they're not making money off of it. It's just purely to get good information out there. And so kind of trying to figure out who those people are and those people know each other and link to each other. And and a lot of them really have good information and they are combating a lot of that misinformation.
0: Yeah, I don't, you're right. This probably should be its own podcast. <laughs> but again, full disclosures, I don't have TikTok. I personally have an Instagram account that I look at if it's once or twice a month that's a lot and it's usually just scanning through for pictures of my kids and nieces and nephews and clicking the heart button so that's that's about it for Instagram I don't post on Instagram Facebook I, I have I, I check it I check it Facebook. from I check it <laughs> sort of not regularly but from time to time and I sort of see things and I rarely comment I occasionally post something like when the cubs were in the world series I posted a bunch of them just cuz it was like the greatest thing ever happened in my life. You know, they're like from time to, I sort of like engage and disengage from Facebook. But I'm certainly not addicted to it. I don't feel that much about it. And I do see tremendous value in social media in terms of connecting people who wouldn't otherwise be connected or keeping people connected in a certain way. Yes, it's somewhat superficial, but when it's that versus nothing, you know, like friends I have, who don't live near me and I don't see them. I don't know what their kids look like. And that's a nice thing. But, you know, in terms of like, Change in the world. I don't know. It's so when I look at stuff like this, it generally tends to be one of two groups. It's either, like you said, somebody who's probably has some vested interest in slamming that person. So if it's slamming doctors, it's going to be someone who's selling something else, like whether it's, oh, come to my birthing center or come take my birthing class because these doctors are, you know, jerks or buy this product because the, the, medicines that these horrible doctors are peddling is going to kill you. So do my whatever thing that I make in my basement out of my van and you should buy this. Or it's just people who had a rough experience, yeah. either something bad happened to them or they truly had a bad experience with a doctor and said, and then said, you know, this doctor wasn't nice to me. This doctor didn't treat me well. This doctor harmed me. And that happens. There is, there is a vast, range of human emotions and experience in this world. And everybody is different. And so when two human beings interact, it could go south. And that could be because one of them has bad intentions, or it could just be that they're not a good mix. You know, you have the person who's very anxious with the person who's very relaxed. That can work out great, or it could be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Or you have the person who loves jokes and tells jokes, and the person who finds jokes offensive it's not like one is good or bad. It just that happens, and so I I tend to just ignore all the all the bad <laughs> stuff. And I, I've always found that if you just, as doctors, you just do your best, you treat people nicely, you yeah. try to help them. Ultimately, enough people will come to you. I, I think this really got escalated with the COVID vaccine right. that it it really got ugly because you know people can disagree about you know, sort of how to interpret the science and or agree on the science, but disagree about how that should translate to policy, right? Like you could could disagree about exactly what does the science show the effectiveness of the vaccine was for preventing yourself from getting sick or preventing others from getting sick. And, you know, there's different, you know, the science is sort of, similar, but there's always going to be varying reports or you can agree on what it is, but then say, well, therefore, should we have kids get vaccinated? Should we not have kids get vaccinated and argue about that, disagree about that? But it went to the next level. It's like these doctors are trying to harm you. These doctors don't care about you. And it's like, that's probably a little bit overboard. I think that that was just a lot much. And I think that it was really unfortunate because things like this can drive people into really dark places, which is a problem.
1: Yeah. And you said something earlier about kind of people who have had bad experiences on an individual level. And that's actually the other type of account that I found. Actually, the reason that I have taken a step back from <laughs> Instagram is a lot of people will sort of portray their own personal experiences. which I actually think is great for just kind of learning about the world and, right. and other people's, you know, what they've experienced, but will a lot of the time present what they've been through as hard fact. From their N of one, like their, you know, their study Mm -hmm. sample of one person. When I was studying for my MFM boards, the internet algorithms started because I was reading things on actual medical websites about genetic conditions and all the things that you need to know to be an MFM. And my Instagram became full of all of these types of accounts of just people who have been through these experiences in their lives. And it got to be so overwhelming that I was like, I need to take a step yeah. back from this.
0: That's the other reason you get off social media because they are like inside your like yeah. cerebrum. It is Not horrible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like the fact that you're like online looking at something medical and it's on yeah, your Instagram shows. Was, yeah, it's pretty it was creepy. Really?
1: It was kind of disturbing. So I just <laughs> I had to take a step back. And but I still I mean, I check I in from time to time. And a lot of my friends actually have these kind of medical account. My friends from training have these medical accounts that I think are actually very excellent where they're trying to combat some of the misinformation that's out there. Yeah, it's
0: it's also like these, you know, online profiles. Like I don't mean like I guess like doctor profiles like, oh, they got three stars. They got five stars. <laughs> someone says something nice. So it doesn't like most of the time people are not going and spending their time on social media or online posting a very long review unless they were very, very happy or very, very upset.
1: Usually, the second You one. know,
0: it's it's the one <laughs> star and the five star. Very few people go on and say, oh, yeah, three point eight. Like
1: it's right because
0: why are they going to take the time for that? Yeah. And people tend you need to be emotionally invested to spend the time mm-hmm. to do something like yeah. that. And so just I would say to the listeners, and to you, Toby,
1: <laughs> although
0: I know that I know how you feel about it as we spoke about it. But if you're going on and you see these accounts, everything has to be with a grain of salt. Like, yeah. who's writing this? A, is it real? B, if it's real, is it just their experience? And ultimately, I think everyone has to just look their doctor, their midwife in the eye and just yeah. you get a good sense. Is this a person who cares about me? Is this a person who vets in me? If the answer is yes, you're probably right. The answer is no. Go see somebody else. Like, yeah. you don't have to be with someone who you think doesn't care about no, that's you.
1: That's true. And then also, if you have a question about something that you saw on, on the internet or on social media that you are wondering about the science of, ask your doctor. Ask them to print studies for you. You know, like <laughs> we can, we are capable of having intellectual conversations with our patients where if you have a, gen, a general curiosity or a question about something you saw or heard, then just ask. And we, most of the time, be pretty happy to provide you with some reading materials. Hopefully. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. The next one is going to be from Melissa. And Melissa asked, hi there. In my last pregnancy, I was diagnosed with postpartum preeclampsia. My blood pressure skyrocketed four days post C-section birth. And after a number of tests, I was confirmed. I'm now pregnant again and would like to better understand this condition, but there isn't much literature on postpartum preeclampsia. Can you help? I'm nervous about what my future holds. Melissa, good luck. I hope you're doing well in the pregnancy, obviously. How would you respond to Melissa's question about postpartum preeclampsia?
1: So postpartum preeclampsia is interesting because I think we still don't entirely know if it is the same condition as preeclampsia in the antepartum period or whether it is a slightly different condition. We always say that, you know, just in a sort of oversimplified way, that preeclampsia is, quote unquote, caused by the placenta. There's a lot of research going into the exact sort of biochemical mechanisms of of why preeclampsia happens, S-flit and all of these kind of substances. But in general, we say it's the placenta's fault. But postpartum preeclampsia, you don't have a placenta anymore. So where is that coming from? And was it a process that started before you delivered and is now manifesting in the postpartum period because of all of the fluid shifts that happen at delivery, you know, blood, Sort of rushes out of the uterus and into the rest of the body, and is the body's vasculature capable of handling all of that fluid? And is that what causes preeclampsia, which is kind of a fluid overloaded state? And so it's an interesting question because we don't we don't totally know if it's exactly the same entity as preeclampsia itself, or if it's it's slightly different. But generally, when we counsel people, we really we sort of put it in the same basket as other types of preeclampsia, and we say you do have a risk of recurrence and that risk of recurrence depends on the severity of preeclampsia, whether you needed magnesium, had lab abnormalities, had HELP syndrome, and also the timing of when it occurred, where the earlier that preeclampsia tends to occur, the higher the risk of recurrence and potentially at earlier gestational ages. So if you think about it, and that sort of time spectrum, then postpartum preeclampsia is as late as you can get it. And so, you know, in a subsequent pregnancy, you may get it before delivery. But, you know, we would hope it wouldn't be a very, very early presentation of preeclampsia. And we do some of the same strategies to try and prevent it, like low-dose aspirin, calcium, like yeah. we about before, <laughs> and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I think the reason, potentially, Melissa, that you're saying there's not a lot about it is if you go online and all the websites that describe preeclampsia whether medical, explanatory, or non-medical, are going to say the same thing. It's It'll say, it's when you're pregnant, your blood pressure goes up, you get protein in your urine, you may have blood testis, you may need to be delivered early, and they give you all this stuff. But in the sort of like the medical literature in pre we include the people who had it after birth, right? right? So like, it's not something that's going to be written in the website, I and mean, some of them might say, oh, like, star, you know, by the way, this can also happen after you deliver it's true. Everyone knows this, but it sometimes just gets forgotten that not everybody with preeclampsia presents when they're pregnant or in labor. And many of them, it happens after birth, either an hour, a day, a week, a couple of weeks. It doesn't tend to be a month, but like generally within a week or two. Yeah, it it has been reported, but generally if it's going to happen, it's going to be within after birth, this can be within the first week or maybe the first two weeks. And so I would say you're actually not as alone as you would think. This is common. common. Yeah, this is pretty common. And it's actually one of the reasons why there's a lot of sort of push now. How exactly can we best monitor women after they give birth and go home? Because we know that this risk still exists. You know, the things that can happen to people that are very dangerous in pregnancy don't go away the second you deliver you can still bleed after you go home you can still get preeclampsia after you go home like things can still happen you get blood clots after you go home and so how to do that exactly on everybody is not clear but certainly people at high risk for preeclampsia after birth like for example you you had it before or someone who has high blood pressure during pregnancy and it sort of gets better right after they deliver we sort of check in with them much more frequently in the first two weeks Either they check their blood pressure at home every day or they come back to the office in three to four days after birth, meaning we don't just say go home and come back in six weeks because we know that what happened to you can happen. And certainly for you, I would say I'm sure that your doctors or midwives, number one, are watching you closely during this pregnancy, but they're also going to probably in some capacity watch you closer after you deliver, which of course, you're going to be on top of it anyways, because you're already scared about this legitimately. (laughs) But it's one of these things that we have to check because you don't always know if your blood pressure is elevated. There's no symptom from your blood pressure being high typically unless it's crazy high
1: yeah to your point about there not being a lot of literature on this there there is a lot of literature yeah. on this <laughs> but it, it does kind of sometimes it gets masked in the just general pre-eclampsia literature but there is a big focus on you know the fourth trimester right. and this idea that just because the baby's out doesn't mean that you're not physiologically pregnant anymore and so there's still a lot of the complications of pregnancy that can happen in that early postpartum period and those Postpartum fluid shifts, like the things that happen at delivery with blood moving around, those are very powerful in terms of changing things like your blood pressure and, and the way that your cardiovascular system handles all of that fluid is you know very, very important.
0: Yeah. Just in terms of nuts and bolts in our practice, what we do for someone, I guess, similar to you has a history of preeclampsia after birth. And obviously, this would be changed slightly based on the rest of the details, but during pregnancy... We have you on a baby aspirin, we make sure you didn't get enough calcium. We sort of have you start checking your blood pressures at home at some point. We do some baseline blood work just to make sure everything is sort of normalness. And we do sort of serial ultrasounds to make sure the baby's growing okay. And then if you don't ever get preeclampsia during pregnancy and delivery, that's great. And then we continue to have you check your blood pressure after you go home. I generally tell people to do it for two weeks or so. Yeah. You know, again, based on exactly when you had it after birth, yours is just a few days. So generally about two weeks or so. But that's what we would do in our practice again, as a, as a general sense. So good luck. I hope it works out very, very well for you. And our last question for today's lightning round is from Anna. So Anna, which is a palindrome, uh, good job. Uh, Absolutely love this podcast. Thank you, Anna. It's been instrumental in helping me get through my current pregnancy, especially as a patient of your practice. I love hearing from some of my favorite doctors. All right, Anna, thank you. Yesterday's episode on headaches in pregnancy, this, this was a while ago, was really helpful. Would love to hear an episode on managing ADHD in pregnancy. Thanks so much. So interestingly, We're recording this, I guess we're in end of April and a couple of weeks, we actually have a podcast on ADHD, but that's more so in children, not in pregnancy. But what's your experience on managing ADHD in pregnancy?
1: So I actually, I actually think this should be a whole podcast episode (laughs) also, (laughs) but it's pretty common. ADHD in general is common. There is a lot of controversy now about whether it was kind of overdiagnosed when the sort of population of people who are now having children were teenagers and kids. So there definitely are some people who don't really have it, who think they have it. But for the most part, I think the diagnoses, at least in the people who have it carried through as adults are pretty accurate. It's pretty common. So it's something that we see a good amount of the time. Generally, as adults, most people with ADHD have kind of learned how to cope and how to adapt their lives around the condition. Many of them are on medications to really help them, and some people aren't and are just kind of managing using lifestyle techniques.
0: Executive um, functioning.
1: Yes, exactly. And <laughs> most of them are very high functioning adults who have jobs and clearly, you know, are building families and their lives are are pretty good. But the most common question is really about medication. Yeah. And so there's a whole host of medications that people use for ADHD. Most of them are kind of safe enough if you need them. Right. Which is sort of a general rule about medications in pregnancy. Right. um, Where the research on these types of medications has not really been classically on medications that are prescribed, but rather medications that are taking taken illicitly. And that's a whole different group of people, a whole different population. And so it's not really fair to extrapolate conclusions from those types of studies to people who are taking prescribed medications for a medical condition. Right.
0: I mean, just just to dig in deeper on that, for example, someone says to me, well, I'm taking, you know, Adderall or Ritalin and they're stimulants and then you find an old study on like amphetamines from the 70s. Yeah, like about meth or
1: yeah, like yeah,
0: people on speed and you know, they're yeah. like these are, I mean, they're on a whole host of things potentially and they're abusing them and it's a different story yeah. and so the outcomes from that aren't really applicable right. necessarily to the outcomes of these medications and so I always point like you may find some pretty scary things out there but that's really from those studies yeah. looking at a much different situation than what we're talking
1: about here. So the things that just as like sort of when we talk about it just physiologically that we worry about with stimulant medications is vasoconstriction like blood right. vessels constricting and can right. that affect the placenta can that cause things like placental abruption it can cause you know sometimes the baby's heart rate to be fast and they call fetal tachycardia and gro- potentially growth restriction these are the theoretical things that we worry about with with stimulants and so if somebody really needs their medication to function. Functioning is important. So I think there's a lot of focus in pregnancy on well if it's not good for the baby I'm just going to stop it, but the quality of life of the mother is very important during pregnancy as well and some people really they can't do their jobs, they can't they just can't get through the day without the medications that they that they need. And so if somebody has a need for being on these these medications to live their lives, the general principle is you should be on the lowest effective dose of the medication and then we watch out for some of these theoretical complications we do ultrasounds Mm -hmm. to monitor the growth of the fetus and we you know check the heart rate and and things like that and and most of the time people have good outcomes
0: yeah i mean the data on the sort of more contemporary medications that are used for adhd the safety is pretty good i mean they're not none of these studies are perfect studies because you can't really randomized, randomized people and this and that. And that's true with again all the medications. It's not unique to these. But the I don't want to say preliminary like they're new, but you know, all of the contemporary data points to them being safe. Yes. But we can never give anyone a hundred percent guarantee on any medication that it's going to be totally safe. But you know, we sort of have to work in those parameters. And we sort of, like you said, there's the medication we say these seem to be safe. If you need it, you should probably be taking it versus stopping it but that's a really uh good question hannah all right this was our lightning round number one cool nice job speaks thanks for coming on again for our listeners any question you feel you want to hear us talk about send it in again unless uh, somehow it gets canceled or you know we censor it we'll (laughs) do it we're open thank you very much
1: yeah next time i want to not know the questions in advance (laughs) all right that's how we're gonna roll
0: (laughs) quiz show everyone watch the movie all right take care Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day.